0: This morning's reading is from Revelations chapter three, verses one through six. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is not dead, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it, and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garment, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit say to the churches.
1: Thanks, Ray. Good morning, Harvest. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Andrew Watkins. I have the privilege of serving here as associate pastor at Harvest Annapolis, and whether you're joining us in person or tuning the online, we're so thankful that you have chosen to spend part of your Sunday morning with us. I want us to go ahead and get into God's Word together this morning, so if you would go ahead and grab your Bibles your phones or whatever it is that you typically use to get your eyes on God's Word, and uh, as Ray just read, if you would meet me in Revelation 3 this morning, uh, our passage is going to be Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6, as we we continue our letters to the church series that we've been uh, uh, going through. We're now on church five out of seven this morning, so we're heading towards the end. And Jesus has is writing to his churches, and so far we've seen him writing to a careless church, and a courageous church, a compromising church, and an over tolerant church. And now this morning, uh, as we get to one, the, the shortest of his seven letters this morning, we're going to see Jesus writing to a dear dead church. Uh, and so even if you don't have a Bible with us uh, with you this morning I would still love it if you could follow along and there's a couple of ways you could do that you could just pull out a phone and Google Revelation 3 ESV and it'll pop up for you or if you would prefer uh, paper copy of God's Word. We have some in the back, and uh, you could make use of that. And If you don't have one at all, we would just love it if you would even just take at that as our gift to you. Keep it, use it, so you can have God's Word uh, for yourself. But again, Revelation 3 this morning, and as you're making your way there, let's stop and pray for our time together in God's Word again this morning. Father, you are worthy of it all, as we've sung this morning. You are worthy of more than we could ever give in praise. You are worthy of it all. You are sovereign over all. And as you say in John 15, as your son says, that apart from him, we can do nothing. And so we confess before that before you, even this morning as we uh, turn to your word, um, there is nothing that we can do apart from you. And how important that is as we look to your word this morning, to know that you must be present among us. You must be working in us if we are going to do anything. And so that is our prayer this morning. As we look at this church in Revelation 3, Father, would you be present and moving and active among us to encourage us, but also to challenge us, to equip us, and to make us look more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, i want to start a little differently than normal this morning. Uh, I want to start by reading a really unique, but probably somewhat familiar uh, passage from the book of Ezekiel. As I read it, the words will be on the screen behind me in, 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 a, in a minute, but I don't want you to just zone out and mindlessly go through this time. I want you to really focus on the words. I want you to access the imaginative part of your brain. Like I know it's been a while for some of us before we've, since we've done that, but I want you to access the imagination in your brain if we can do that. And really picture the words that are going to be on the screen behind me because these are some of the most vivid pictures that we see anywhere in Scripture. Can you do that this morning? Mm-hmm. Are, we, are we awake enough to actually access our imaginations and, and really go there? Because if we're going to do this, we've got to go all in. We've got to use our imagination. So let's, let's do that. Ezekiel 37 says this. Ezekiel's writing. He says, The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me around among them and behold, there were very many of them on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. He said to me, son of man, can these bones live? I answered, "O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy or preach over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and and bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. So church, I want to ask you a question. Do you believe God can do that? Yes. Absolutely. Love that response. Do do you, I know it sounds crazy, but we just looked at, like, do you believe that God can take what is clearly dead and make it alive again? Like, these are, really dry, disconnected bones, like clearly whoever they belong to has been gone for, for a while, but God, through his, his servant Ezekiel, as he's faithfully serving the Lord and the, the preaching, the proclamation of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit, God resurrects those dead bones for his glory and he calls them together as his people. If you believe that, if you don't believe that, I, I hope you will this morning because Ezekiel 37 isn't the only place that we see that happening. In the first, for the last few weeks, as we've been working our way through Revelations 2 and 3, we've, we've, uh, we've seen Jesus examining his churches as he's been walking among them. And spoiler alert, as we've already read this morning, when he gets to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3, he doesn't waste any time beating around the bush. Like, he gets straight to the point, like, this is a dead church that we're going to look at this morning. Like, this is a casket with a steeple on top. Rigor mortis has already set in. But instead of just signing their death certificate and moving on to the next church, Jesus graciously summons them to life and renewed effectiveness in his kingdom. Because that has been our prayer and our emphasis for the past several months, really since the beginning of our ministry year this year. Our prayer has been, Jesus, will you build your church? And Jesus will build his church. In fact, if you're taking notes with us this morning, that's our big idea this morning, our, our one-sentence overarching theme of this passage. Our main takeaway this morning is this. Jesus will build his church, his way, with his people. Again, Jesus will build his church, his way, with his people. It doesn't even matter if all of the odds in the world are stacked against it, up to and including being dead, as we just read, and as, as the church in Sardis is in Revelation 3. Jesus will build his church. Because the reality is that spiritually speaking, things aren't always as they seem in church life. The Things might look one way from our perspective, but, but we don't have the, the, the complete picture that Jesus has. Things like, might look like they're done from where we sit, but we don't have the power that Jesus has to change it all. And so since things aren't always as they seem, Jesus wants us to understand how things really are. As he he confronts the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, he invites us to look on and to to learn how things really are, to get a dose of reality this morning from his point of view. And the first reality that we'll see this morning is this, that a lifelike church does not equal a living church. That a lifelike church does not equal a living church. If you have your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 3, Look, look, look with me at just verse one. Again, it says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Again, we've already said it, but let's, let's cut to the chase just like Jesus does here to acknowledge the sad reality that at the time of Jesus' examination of this church, the, the church in Sardis, was dead. Like, that's not our opinion, that's Jesus' words, that's his evaluation. It's not just sick, it's not even on life support. Again, this is a casket with a steeple on top, it's dead. The thing is, it doesn't seem that way to the average onlooker. If you were a person living in the city of Sardis, you'd, you'd look at this church and be like, everything's fine. Things look completely normal, they're going around like normal, like, this, is, this is normal, everything's fine. But Jesus, as he examines his church, says, I know you have the reputation of being alive, But the reality is, you are dead. In other words, just because a church is lifelike doesn't mean it's living. Just like the city of Sardis itself, the the greatness of the church in Sardis was in its past. Their best days were behind them, and they were probably spending their time reminiscing about the past because that helped them avoid the reality of their, their present condition, because reminiscing about the past is always easier than serving Jesus in the present, the city of Sardis itself was located in a, what was almost like a natural fortress, about 1,500 feet above a valley below, and so the people that lived there felt very secure. It was a successful commercial center located off just, uh, just off of one of the main shipping routes, so, so people who lived there lived comfortably, and by all accounts, the church in Sardis was no different than the city that it was located in. The church wasn't facing persecution. There's no mention of false teachers that have invaded, and there's, there's not even opposition from, the, from the, the large Jewish population that was in Sardis. So, so the church here felt safe and secure from all of the other things that some of these other churches are facing, just like the city felt secure. Since it was in a wealthy city full of successful people with money in the bank, the, the church probably lived comfortably too. We could say their building was paid off, they made budget each month, and, and nothing bothered them financially. For sure, they would have been busy with all sorts of activities and programs, and and, and hear this, they might have even had an awesome pastor who who faithfully and and opened God's word, he was an engaging teacher, and they may have had an incredible staff that led well, but at some point along the way, the, the security and comfort that they enjoyed allowed them to be lulled into a false sense of security, and instead of keeping their feet on the gas pedal to fulfill God's mission for why he put them in Sardis, they started coasting and they coasted straight to their death because things aren't always as they seem. A lifelike church does not equal a living church. See, in our 21st century American church culture, we're, we're tempted to think that the, the church with the most life is the one that has the, is the biggest and the best and most exciting things going on. We're tempted to look at a church's Facebook and page and, and say, man, like, things are really happening over there. Like, things, are, things are going on. They're, they're busy. In other words, they have the reputation of being alive But from Jesus' point of view, the the health of a church isn't evaluated by the activity of a church, but by the spiritual depth that can't be seen on a website or a Facebook page. And when Jesus examines the spiritual health of the church in Sardis, he found that even though they looked alive, this is a dead church. Pardon the somewhat graphic illustration, but I think it's an important one for us. Last Thursday, I had the, the privilege of preaching the funeral service for my 93-year-old grandmother. And I, and I say privilege because she, she loved Jesus. She served him for decades. And so she's having a pretty awesome day in heaven right now. But two days before she passed away, I, I had the opportunity to go and just sit with her for, for a couple of hours. And, and while she looked like death, it was not a pretty sight. This woman who had always been so full of life had grown weak and frail. Her hair was all messed up. She was pale. She wasn't moving. She was barely breathing. There wasn't a whole lot going on there. Her, her body was just a shell of its former self. But then it just didn't even look like her. But then, but then she passed away. And then what do funeral homes do? Funeral homes want to make dead people look like they're alive. So even though a, a week had passed by between when she actually passed away and when the funeral service happened, w- when I showed up on last Thursday morning to, to preach her funeral, uh, the, the funeral home had done her hair. They got her all dressed up. They arranged her to look alive, and that's what a lot of churches do. They're dead, but somebody plays this part of of, of a mortician, and with well-intentioned or not, they do everything they can to make something that's dead look alive. But lifelike does not mean living, and that's the church in Sardis. There's all kinds of symptoms of spiritual death that can show up in churches that we could talk about for hours, but we only have so much time. So instead of of talking about all the signs and symptoms of death that that might show up in any particular church, let's just, let's skip all that. Let's do a, a spiritual autopsy, if you will, and jump straight to the cause of death in churches. There can be a lot of ways that death shows up in churches, but generally speaking, at the end of the day, there's only one cause of death, and Jesus warns us about that cause of death in John chapter 15. John 15, he says this in verses 1 through 6, He says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus is using a parable here that's not very hard for us to understand and that we ought to take very seriously. What Jesus is saying here is that he is the vine and we are the branches. And just like branches die when they're cut off from a vine, churches die when they're disconnected from Jesus. Jesus is the life supply of every church. And when a, when a, when a church disconnects itself from its life supply, it dies. Maybe slowly and painfully, maybe quick and easy, but it dies. And then, then the autopsy report just says, cause of death severed from Jesus. And from that point on, it might continue to meet it might still be characterized by a flurry of activity. It might still look alive, but Jesus is clear. Apart from him, it can, be, it can do nothing. It might be ineffective, and the reality is that it's dead. No matter how long it takes for the body to decay and decompose, it's dead. That was the case with this church in Sardis. Jesus knew that, but regardless of their condition, he still cared about them. These people were his church. They, he, he bought them with his own blood. And that's, that's why I don't want to miss his tone here at the beginning of verse 1. And this was so convicting to me this week as, as, I, as I thought about this. We see so often when we see what's clearly a dead church, church around us, we're tempted to, to label them and even maybe mock them in the process as we, as we just move by. And we'll just say, like, man, that's a dead church. Like, that's a dead church over there. They're so dead, they don't even know they're dead. Like Somebody ought to just buy that property and, and, just, and just bulldoze it as if a dead church is a joke to laugh about instead of a tragedy to lament. Like, I'm guilty of that. But that's not Jesus' tone here. That's not his heart for churches either. He's honest with them about their condition, yes, but he's also full of care and control. The beginning of verse 1 says that he has the seven spirits of God. So what that means basically is that he knows their condition. He's, he's involved. He's, he's acutely aware of what's going on there, and he's also holding the seven stars. We've talked about that before. So, so he's in control here. He's able to do something about their condition, and that tells me something because, again, things aren't always as they seem. From Jesus' point of view, not only, number one, does a lifelike church not equal a living church, but moving on, a dead church does not equal a done church. That a dead church does not equal a done church. Look back with me at Revelation 3, verses 2 and 3. Jesus' letter goes on and he says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. I love again that Jesus doesn't just sign their death certificate and walk away. Instead, he again summons them back towards life and usefulness in his kingdom. If only they'll repent. What that tells me then is, is that Ezekiel 37 can still happen. Like Jesus can create an army out of dry, dead, decaying bones. There is hope for dead and dying churches. Like There's a lot of distance between Ezekiel 37 and Revelation 3, but God is still able and Jesus will build his church, his way with his people. A church is not done until Jesus says it's done. And so in verses two and three, he, he provides a pathway for churches to return to vibrant life and renewed kingdom usefulness. And what that tells me, friends, is that, is that if you still have a pulse, you still have a purpose. If you're willing, God's not done with you just like he's not done with them. Again, from Jesus' point of view, a dead church is not a done church, so let's walk through this pathway towards renewed kingdom usefulness that he gives them. And let me just say before we, before we do that, that humility is the key all the way throughout this process. Humility is required because, see, see pride is like carbon monoxide in the life of the church. Pride will will sneak in and and start suffocating the life out of a church before anyone realizes that it's actually there. And so so if any church wants Jesus to show up and work, it's going to have to root out pride and and relentlessly pursue humility to walk this pathway to renewed kingdom usefulness. And the first step, Jesus says here, is to wake up. It's literally the first instruction he gives them in verse 2. Wake up. You've fallen asleep at the wheel and it's costing you. The city of Sardis itself had to learn the lesson of how important it is to stay alert the hard way. Now the church is learning it too. Like I said, the the city itself was located up almost in a natural fortress, and because they felt safe, they were complacent, they were foolishly confident, and they didn't usually send out guards to protect them. Like They thought they were just fine the way things were. The front door was left wide open, and they learned that lesson historically uh, the hard way, not just once. But twice, as, as invaders came in, in the middle of the night and just conquered everything while everyone was asleep and not realizing what was going on, now the church is learning that lesson too. Because they felt safe, the church grew complacent to the point of death, and now Jesus is saying, wake up and smell the coffee. Be real about your condition and the dangers that you're facing, church. In my experience, this is absolutely one of the hardest things for a church to do. They romanticize the past to the point where they ruin their present effectiveness because they can't, can't or won't be real about the fact that, they're, not only, that they're, they're only being busy for busy's sake instead of being effective for eternity's sake. They get caught in an endless cycle of doing things a certain way because they've always been done that way. But remember, a lifelike church does not equal a living church. And so first Jesus says, wake up to the reality of your current condition and be humble enough to be honest about it. Keep Know, knowing the difference between being busy and being effective, know that difference and wake up. The next Jesus says, shore up. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Why? Because I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Listen, the people in Sardis thought they were acing the final exam and then they got the report card and it showed up incomplete. Like, that's a painful reality to understand. To be clear, that's an incomplete both in quantity and quality, but the emphasis here is probably more so on the quality. Friends, this is a word for us. See, it's one thing to talk about discipleship, it's one thing to read about discipleship, it's one thing to teach about discipleship, it's one thing to, to, to run discipleship programs that move people through a system and boxes are checked, but it's another thing entirely to actually do discipleship and build deep relationships where people are actually shepherded and hard, honest conversations are actually had and sin is actually confronted and, and people are pointed towards Jesus. If you think and talk about the work of ministry without doing the work of ministry, it doesn't matter how good your intentions might be. The reality is the work is incomplete in the sight of God. Mm -hmm. That's the lesson that Sardis is learning. So Jesus says, wake up and shore up. Strengthen what remains. Make some changes. Get the work done. Don't just show up and and put a front up and go through the motions of ministry. Lean in and do ministry. And then he says, think back. Think back. Verse three, remember then what you have received and heard. In other words, go back to the basics. The basics are the gospel. But for some reason, we get bored with what is actually the best news in the universe and try to move on to what we think is bigger and better and more exciting things, things that are more so-called practical. God forgive us. The Christian life and and ministry is not one that moves past the gospel. It's one that, that digs down deeper in the gospel. Like Everything is rooted in the fact that Jesus died in, in our place to reconcile us to God and make all things new. But far too often, we're afraid that if we're not clever or creative enough, nobody will be interested in what we have to say, and they'll, they'll find better things to do with their time. And so, so we find a, a better way. Friends, our cleverness and creativity might attract people for a while, but it's only the gospel that is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Our cleverness and creativity might distract people from the pain in their marriages, but it is only the gospel who can actually heal the pain in their marriages. Our our cleverness and creativity might keep our kids out of trouble for for a certain amount of time, but it is only the gospel that can keep them for eternity if we will point them towards it. And so Jesus says, stop wasting your time looking for service-level solutions to heart-level problems and go back to the basics, Remember then what you have received and heard. Remember the gospel and keep it at the forefront of everything that you do. In other words, lock down on truth. That's the next thing that Jesus says. He says, lock down. He says, remember it. Then he says, keep it. Lock down. Don't waver. Though apparently the church in Sardis didn't seem to be facing any pressure at the time, like the other churches that we've looked at and that Jesus has written to, the reality for us in our day is that from both inside and outside the church, there will constantly be pressure to compromise, pressure to waver on truth, pressure to use the world's best practices instead of biblical wisdom and truth because doing things God's way might be awkward or uncomfortable, and maybe even painful. Friends, there's a million different ways that the world will push and pull you towards compromise on things anywhere on the scale from, from obviously dangerous to seemingly harmless. And Jesus says, uh uh-uh, uh, uh uh, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go there. Stand firm, hold fast, lock down. And friends, locking down on biblical truth requires intentionality. One commentator that I read this week points out that that we never drift towards anything worthwhile. We don't coast into truth, but we do run the risk at all times of sliding into error and compromise, especially on the little things that don't seem all that dangerous at all, and cause us to wonder, like maybe maybe I should just like let this one go. Like it's not that big of a deal. But let me tell you, friends, if you, if you will determine right up front to lock down and stand on the truth of God's word in every area of your life, life becomes incredibly simple. I did not say it will be easy. did not say that. In fact, it might get harder, but it will be incredibly simple. That's why Jesus says, lock down, stand on this. But then the last step on the pathway to renewed kingdom usefulness is to look up, or in one word in the middle of verse 3, he says, repent. See, when you've been doing your own thing and going your own way and, you, and then you genuinely look up towards the Lord in humility, you'll see God for who he is and you will be driven to your knees in repentance. To repent is to change direction before God and at the end of the day, that's exactly what this church needed. It's not enough to just wake up and shore up and think back and lock down without looking up because the reality is they could have heard the warning and made some changes and, and they could have hosted a conference on the gospel. They could have altered some things. They could have recommitted themselves to doctrinal purity. They could have done lots of things, but without genuine, humble repentance, those adjustments would have only lasted temporarily as important as they are. Without repentance, the church in Sardis will stay in the cemetery. What they needed was to humble themselves and get on their knees before the Lord and say, God, this is your church, not ours. God, would you forgive us for trying to find our own ways of doing things? Would you forgive us for compromising with with the world around us? Would you forgive us for, for, for going off of your plan? Would you help us to get back on it? Because this is your church, and we want you to build it your way with your people. That requires humility, but it's an important one because in the rest of verse three, Jesus says, if not, if you will not repent, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Did you hear that? If a church will not wake up and repent and get on the pathway towards renewed kingdom usefulness, Jesus will show up on their doorstep and come against them. Friends, I don't want that. Maybe your reaction is like, no, nah, my Jesus. He'd never do something like that. My, my Jesus is kind and gentle, and he would, he would never do something like that. And let me just say, yes, he is. He is, he is kind and gentle. But also, yes, he would. He said so himself. That's why Charles Bridges, a 17th century pastor and author, wrote this in his classic book to pastors and churches. Back in 1656 he said this: "I think it is no time now to neglect our duty and befriend our sins and so provoke the Lord against us. Instead, it is fitting for us to fall down at the feet of our offended Lord and to justify him in his judgments and freely." and penitently to confess our transgressions and resolve upon a speedy and thorough reformation before wrath breaks out against us, which will leave us no remedy. Friends, Jesus is serious when he says, if you won't wake up and repent, I will come against you. That's why we have to take this letter so seriously. He's not playing around. He will build his church, and it will be his way. And it will be with his people because Jesus won't just use just anybody who happens to be around. The type of person that Jesus is looking for to build his church with, the last reality that he wants us to understand from his point of view this morning is this, that a clean Christian equals a kept Christian. That a clean Christian equals a kept Christian. Look back with me one last time at Revelation 3, verses four through six. It goes on. He says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life I will confess his name before my father and before his angels so he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches well up until this point in the letter Jesus hasn't said anything positive about the church in Sardis at all But here at the end of his letter, he commends some of the sincere saints that have stayed faithful and pursued holiness and Christ-likeness through it all, even though they were clearly in the minority of of the people at this church. Even the praise that he gives them here at the end points them back to the priorities that we saw at the beginning. Jesus is talking about the promises that exist for the overcomers or the, the one who conquers as he calls them, but these people aren't conquerors the way that we would expect them to be conquerors. Again, in our culture, we expect the biggest, the best, the strongest, the most gifted, the most talented, maybe the most determined. Like surely they would be the ones that Jesus will, that will use to build his church around. They're the ones that'll outlast and outwork everyone else. Surely they'll be the ones who conquer, but no, that's not who Jesus commends here at the end. Who Jesus commends are not the strong ones, the smart ones, or the smooth ones, but the clean ones the pure ones, the the holy ones, the people who have not soiled their garments, as he says in verse 4, the people who have not compromised with the world. He says, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. In other words, a clean Christian is a kept Christian, now within the span of two verses here, he's talking about conquerors being clean both in this life and clean for all of eternity. So let's make sure that we understand him rightly and not, not, not put the, the, the cart of sanctification before the, before the horse of salvation. Let's talk about eternity first. Let's get things in order here. So the only way that we can be clean for eternity is if it is Jesus who cleanses us by his blood. Every single one of us is a sinner. Our, our robes, our garments, our lives have been permanently stained by our sin, and there is not enough bleach in the world to get us to a point where we can be holy and, and perfect and clean and white and acceptable in God's eyes. But Jesus can do that. Over 2,000 years ago, He came to this world, took on human flesh, lived the, the perfect life that you and I could never live, and He kept His garments pure. Then he went to the cross and died in our place to take the punishment for our sins. And he was buried and, died and, and rose again from the dead three days later so that, that if we would just repent or turn from our sins and place our faith in him alone for salvation, as 1 John 1, 9 says, he will be faithful and just to forgive our sins and what, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to clean us, to make us pure in God's eyes. Let's call that positional cleansing. It's it's permanent. It's once and for all, clean in God's eyes, clean for all eternity. And if you have repented and placed your faith in Jesus, then you are cleaned and kept in the eyes of God, not because of your ability, not because of what you have done, not because of your ability to be a good person, but because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. So the question is, have you done that? If not, run to Jesus and be saved. There is no better decision you could make today that will affect all of eternity than to run to Jesus and be saved. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. So if you're, if you're not sure where you stand, things stand between you and God, don't leave here today without talking to someone in this room about Jesus. And repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. But again, all that's talking about positional cleansing. Yes, when you are saved through Jesus, you are permanently and positionally clean in the eyes of God and you will be kept for all of eternity because a clean Christian is a kept Christian. But what about here in this life? Jesus isn't writing to people in eternity. He's writing to people on earth and saying, some of you that are in Sardis right now have managed to keep clean. You haven't soiled your garments. You haven't gotten all muddy with the world and things like that. And so what about us here in the here and now? Because I don't know about you, but but I still sin. Like Positionally, yes, I am clean in the eyes of God for all of eternity, and by God's grace, that'll never change. But practically speaking, there's still a lot of cleaning up to do. Anybody else there with me? We have a lot of cleaning up to do. And so if Jesus is saying that it is the the clean who will be kept, it is the clean that will overcome, then what hope is there for us? Like Pick a day of the week, we're not so clean. The hope for us is that when we are positionally clean in him, We are being practically cleaned by him day by day by day. That's the process of our sanctification. God the Father's work in our lives through God the Holy Spirit to make us look like God the Son. In other words, listen, it's not your cleanness that will keep you, it's your keptness that cleans you. Say that again, it's, it's not your cleanness, your ability to clean yourself up and be a good person that, that will keep you, it is your keptness, what God has done for you on the cross, that will clean you in this life. What a hope that is! That the final product of our cleanliness isn't on us, we just have to be faithful and keep pursuing Jesus to the end. I love the way Jude 24 and 25 puts it to close his letter. Jude says this, he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, in other words, now to him who is able to keep you clean in this life, who is able to keep you on your feet, to keep you from getting all down and falling in the mud with the world, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, that's clean, before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all times and now and forevermore. Amen. It's about him. He will build his church, his way with his people, because he's able. Because he's able. But in order for any Christian to be cleaned and kept, in order for any church to be called back from death to life, it's got to hear verse 6 says he who has an ear to hear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches We've got to hear We've got to respond We've got to repent We've got to wake up and hold fast to Jesus and his gospel it's a choice he'll invite yes he'll he'll call he'll extend the invitation but he will not force you or any church to accept that invitation. And we've already looked at what happens when we choose not to accept his invitation. He will come against us if we do not wake up and repent. There's a picture I've always kept in my office as a pastor of a little old country church up in Harford County, not too far from where I grew up that has had a profound impact on my life and ministry, but not in the way that you would expect. See, it'll be on the screen in a second. It's, it's farther to there. Um, and its name is or or i should say was herald of hope baptist church i've never actually stepped foot inside that building in fact uh, no church has actually met inside that building within my lifetime and that is exactly what that that building has looked like for the entire time that i have ever known about it I do know some people who know some people who know some people who have been in that church, and, and, and while I have asked them about it, the reality is that nobody really knows what happened to that church. To everyone's knowledge, that church didn't build a bigger building down the street. There was no conscious decision to replant or relocate closer to town where it could have a more effective gospel impact. None of that happened. They weren't being strategic about anything. But at some point they had a final service, whenever that was, somebody locked the doors, and they drove out of the parking lot, and Herald of Hope Baptist Church ceased to exist. It died. I don't know the exact story of what happened to that church, but I can take some guesses, and, and whether those guesses are right or not, I've kept a picture of that church in my office because it's a reminder to me as a pastor of what can happen when a church takes its eyes off of Jesus and detaches itself from God's word and gets sidetracked from God's mission like the church in Sardis did. I don't know if that's what happened to that church, but that's what I would imagine that looks like. If only they would have had ears to hear. So the question is, do you have ears to hear? Do we as Harvest Bible Chapel Annapolis have ears to hear? And don't get me wrong, I'm not in any way suggesting that we are a dead church. By God's grace, God's been moving in incredible ways throughout the life of our church over the past several years and in particular over the last few months. Like We've heard so many of you share how, how you've seen God working in your lives and our staff has seen it and our elders have seen it and it's awesome, praise God. But just like the invitation for both the church in Sardis and the church on the screen behind me was to wake up and strengthen what remains, the application for us is to stay awake. Stay awake. Don't let that happen. Strengthen what remains. Don't grow complacent and drift off task. Don't leave the mission incomplete. Keep clean. Pursue holiness and Christ likeness. Keep after it. Don't get comfortable. Because listen, if, if God can call a bunch of dead bones back to life, just imagine what He can do with a church full of people that are fully surrendered to Him. Imagine what He can do with that. So are you fully surrendered? Do you have ears to hear or do you only have eyes to observe from over on the sidelines? Harvest, if I may be blunt, again, things aren't always as they seem. We may seem small, but from Jesus' point of view, our ability to be an effective outpost for the kingdom of God isn't measured by our size or our ability. It's measured by the degree of our surrender to our Savior because when a church is fully surrendered to Jesus there is no limit to what he can do in and through that church and when we think otherwise not only are we excusing ourselves from faithfulness regardless of what our circumstances might be in front of us but we're selling him short because friends Jesus will build his church he's able he will build his church and it will be his way and it will be his pe- with his people So let's choose to be a part of it. Will you pray with me as the worship team comes? Father, thank you for your grace. The grace to be honest with churches when they've gone off path. The grace to still involve yourself in where they are instead of just signing a death certificate and saying you failed. Thank you for the grace to invite them back to renewed kingdom usefulness. Father, thank you for what you've been doing in the life of our church over the past seven or eight years, and particularly over the last few months. God, would you strengthen what remains? Keep us awake. Help us to lean in. Do not let us take our feet off the gas pedal on fulfilling the mission. Give us the boldness, the courageous, the, the urgency to have important conversations with the people around us, the people in our small groups, the people in our neighborhood, to, to, to help them see maybe this is an area where we've, we've gone off track. We've, we're, we're not walking clean right here. Help us to have the boldness to have those conversations and give them the humility to hear those conversations. Use, use your spirit to work in their lives, to be cultivating their hearts. God, do a thing. It's your church, not ours. And you will build it. Not only will we not build it, we can't build it, Father. Your son has to build his church. So do it, God. Be glorified in the worship that we give you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.